Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My normal Christmas is hectic. Drinks, theatre, the football, a bit of ballet even... That's going to the ballet, not me dancing. And all on top of a year of city breaks, culture chasing, and of course writing, broadcasting, interviewing and meetings. Not too much time then for anything slow and leisurely. And then came you-know-what, and the hustle de-hustled, and the bustle de-bustled, and unrushed pastimes came back into my life. In particular, long walks and long books. I relearned to read. It helps you see the world through another person's eyes and being willing and able to see the world through another person's eyes to experience empathy is one of the great human achievements. Stig Abel there, star of Page and Radio Wave. In today's episode, he and I draw up our PC cameras and talk about what we think you could be reading beside the blazing Yule log this holiday season. You can have a wonderful time reading and, and finding space in life to read is the critical thing. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, wrapped up in books. My name is Stig Abel. I present uh, The Breakfast Show on Times Radio. I write a column for The Sunday Times. And I've just written a book called Things I Learned on the 628, which, handily enough for this podcast, is about what happens if you read for an hour a day, how many books can you read, and what books should you read. The conceit of this is that we're going to do uh, a programme about books at Christmas. But the truth is that we do this programme any time. It's just that they let us loose on it with that excuse. That's exactly right. Although I did think in the spirit that Die Hard is a Christmas film, because it starts, <laughs> it features Christmas. LA Confidential <laughs> is my favourite Christmas book by James Elroy, because the key scene happens at Christmas. It's called Bloody Christmas, because it's about violence at a police station. But there you go. If you wanted to make a Christmas-themed book, let me start off with LA Confidential, and people can either take that or leave that as they choose. Yeah, mayhem at Christmas. Why not? <laughs> if we do actually go back to our loved ones at Christmas, why not take something which is full of rapine and murder? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> okay, you've got three books. I've got two. So we're going to start off with your book, and we're going to start off with your book by a, a bloke called Stig Abel. So I wrote this book because it's about what happens if you read for an hour every day. The average commute is 50 minutes in the US and the UK. So I spent a year reading different books, each month a different category, so crime writers, uh, Shakespeare, uh, English classics, American classics, and had a chance to just read loads of different books with a little bit of structure. It just occurred to me that 
novel writing particularly, although it's true of other, other books as well, is one of the great human achievements at its most basic, taking the time to appreciate another person's perspective, particularly fiction, I think is one of the truly great things that human beings do. It's one of the things that marks us out from other animals. So although we'll be talking about uh, other books that might entertain you, that might enrich your life, that might fill the gaping holes in your education or experience, just the fact that you're willing to allow another person into your head for a while and that person has taken the trouble to introduce themselves into your head is one of the great things in humanity. That's very uh, elevating and so on, but you had to make some choices here. And the first thing I'm going to ask you is why the 628? Are you trying to tell us you had to get up really early to get to work? Is that your message? Yeah, right? I'm showing off basically. Also, I've written a book about what I read on a commute in a world where there's no commutes. So my sense <laughs> of timing is, is, is truly miraculous. But I did used to get up early, actually. The beginning of the book is where my wife says to me, somewhere between our first and second child, you're so lucky to have a commute. And people who are, haven't been in back to work might recognise this now more keenly because a commute is just a moment where you can sit with music on and read a book by yourself. You can be very beautifully lonely on a commute. But I think the lesson of, of lockdown and coronavirus is you need to find these places wherever you can. It might be when your children are watching TV or it might be when they're napping or it might be last thing at night or you might get up early in the morning when the house is quiet and it's just you and the cat. All of those things I think are... It's finding a time to carve out for reading. The other element of reading is probably its analgesic qualities. It, it deadens the pain, it sort of distracts you, it calms you down, it soothes you. And I think we all need a bit of that in life. In this book, The Things I Learned on the 628, um, which are the principal books that stand out for you as things you learned on those journeys? I had an opportunity to pick books that I've read about but never read. I don't know if you've read the Radzinski March by Joseph Roth, or Rott, as yeah. it's pronounced in German. One of the great novelists of the 20th century, in common with so many people I discovered in my year, overlooked in his own time. He died in 1939 as the dark world of the Nazis surrounded him. He died in, in Paris eventually, but he, he was from Germany. He was viscerally critical of the Nazi regime. He had Hitler's number from the very beginning. His wife was euthanized in a mental asylum by the Nazis. But out of this wow. incredibly dark and bleak world, he wrote a book about the advent of the First World War, the end of the empire, really, and the beginning of nationalism. It was just this fantastically beautiful, mordant, sad book. And Joseph Brodsky said there's a sort of poem on every page of Joseph Roth, and there is. It's not in a overly ornamented fashion. He's a writer that was writing during a time in, in human history where darkness was rising. And he testified to that darkness uh, really remarkably, I thought. It's a nice short book too. That's the other thing. It, it seems to me that when you're going on a commute, you, you could effectively choose, are you going to choose something that you could get through in a week? Or are you going to choose something so vast, you're still reading it a month later? I remember reading Ulysses on, on the commute. And in a weird way, that's the best way to read that book because it's quite hard to read for, for more than half an hour. Dipping in and out works quite well. Whereas I had that moment where you sit and you sort of miss your station or you get out of the, the, the train and sit at the station and carry on reading. That's normally a sign that a book has got you. And I had that quite often, but when did you come across uh, 
Joseph Roth, David, was he always suggested to you? I got really interested in that period of history, which, in a sense, what happens in the Austro-Hungarian Empire gives you some clues as to the burgeoning nationalism, which gives rise to all these terrible things in Central Europe, including Nazism. And so there are a whole series of books uh, by authors and books by Stefan Zweig, Arthur Schnitzler, and so on, from that period. The thing that I like about this is this is one of the best. It's also, as I said, pretty short, and that means you can really concentrate on the prose. I also had this kind of rather perverse thing, which I think quite a lot of people have. No sooner have I started a book than I want to finish it. And with a short book, that's always in sight. <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree with you. That works particularly well with genre books, where it's not the how you get there, it's what the end point is. So when you read crime fiction, I think that's a good way of reading crime fiction, sort of breathlessly and almost getting ahead of yourself because you want to try and find out how it ends. I had that bit with Rebecca, which I'd never read before this year. So my first month was crime fiction, actually, and I read Rebecca, Tiger in the Smoke by Marjorie Allingham and Watchmen, which is a graphic novel. Um, and I think that's a good way of reading crime fiction, David. I think you're right to have that sort of narrative pull to drive you to the end. And do you think Ulysses is an example of the one book that you would not have read unless you had been reading on a train? Yeah, the other one I actually read this year is very similar is Proust. When an author's become an adjective, I kind of felt that I should have read them. Proustian is always battered around by often pretentious people. I read it in the same month as I read Roth, and of course Roth is not even the most famous writer called Roth. No. And he's been sort of oddly overlooked, really, in, in some respects, whereas Proust is often cited. So because I am a bit of an autodidact. I'm interested in filling the bottomless well of my own ignorance. I thought I should seize this opportunity to learn a bit and try and expand my experience. So I read the first book of a research by Proust, and again, with some pleasure, actually, although some moments of, of slowness as well, it has to be said. The other book I want to just mention, which I, again, I think was a tribute to my own ignorance, was Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God. She, again, was someone overlooked in her own time. She's a black American author, member of the Harlem Circle in the 20s and 30s, and she writes this book, which is about a, a, a young woman who marries three times pretty unsuccessfully, living as a black woman in America. It's a really important book. It's beautifully written. It's filled with the natural world in, in a really elegant and vibrant way. But she dies pretty much neglected. She was writing a biography of Herod, of all things, that no one had actually asked for in a sort of mad way. And then Alice Walker rediscovered her in the 70s. And then she gets picked up by Toni Morrison, by Oprah, by Zadie Smith. By now, she's actually pretty famous. But she was lost for a while. And again, uh, trying to find those figures who you maybe should have read but didn't. You should have been put to your attention but hasn't. I think that's quite a useful thing to do as well. Did you ever have the experience where you're reading one of these kind of grand books on the train and the person next to you looks over and says, oh, Proust, eh? You know what? The great thing about, I think, living in the modern world is no one talks to you on a train. I don't want to speak to anyone on a train. I don't want anyone to speak to me. I do find on a train, and indeed this is true everywhere, people are on their phones and they're a bit huffy. And I think there is a point where if you look to someone else reading a book and there's a nod, ha. there's a kind of look in the eyes. One of the things I really feel very strongly and, and mention this in the book is I can't bear snobbery about books. I love books that just give you pleasure. I mean, you know when you look forward to go to bed because you might read a bit in bed or you look forward to the train because you might be reading on the train. That's what it's all about. So I think I probably had a couple of nods with fellow readers, but nothing more than that, which is probably how it should be. So that's your book, Things I Learned on the 628, which has just been published. Who's published it, Stig? John Murray. 
Byron's publishers. I talk a bit about Byron as well, who I read for the first time with absolute <laughs> joy, actually. Uh, and how much is going to cost oh, us? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, you I'm don't staying know how much free... your book costs? I don't know, thirty ninety nine. It's expensive, but probably <laughs> worth it. I'd like to put it that way. OK, I love, I love an author who doesn't know how much his book costs. I think that is really a sign of the times. I'm Matt Dickinson, and I'm Chief Sports Writer at The Times. The book I'd recommend to read this Christmas is The Moth and the Mountain, a true story of love, war and Everest by Ed Caesar. It's about Maurice Wilson, an extraordinary, eccentric character who hatches a frankly mad plan to be the first to the top of Everest in the 1930s. Not only does he try to go alone to the top of the world, but by flying a gypsy moth aircraft from Britain into the Himalayas. It's a staggering story of ambition, adventure and also a man deeply affected by his experiences in the First World War. We learn not just about Wilson, but why people take on such extreme challenges, even when they seem doomed to failure. Caesar has a magnificent tale to tell, and he does so beautifully. I'm going to bore you now with a a book that I'm going to choose. The novelist Robert Harris, a non-fiction book about the great Hitler Diaries hoax of 1983. It's called Selling Hitler... And I read it very recently. I meant to read it years ago and just didn't. And Stig, everything that is weird about the current world that we put down to social media, that we put down to recent developments, guess what? It was all going on before. It's all there in Selling Hitler. Essentially, Selling Hitler is the story of how a German forger slaked the appetite that there was for Hitler memorabilia by faking some Hitler diaries, which he was paid for by the volume, pretending that they were being smuggled out of East Germany and over the border, and got a very large German company, Gruner and Jahr, which ran one of the great magazines, to pay vast sums of money, and Stern magazine to recoup their money, then tried to sell on the rights and successfully did all across the world, including actually to the organisation that you and I work for. Yeah, although I'm not totally sure that they paid out in the end, with the result that the Sunday Times, for example, had a whole splash edition on these Hitler diaries. And the whole way in which it happened, the confirmation bias, the kind of motivated reasoning behind the people who did it, the way in which they set themselves up to be conned because of their own desperate desire for one of the great scoops, when actually the forgery was really bad. Was it? (laughs) It was really bad. And it was waiting there to be discovered. But for one reason or another, huge experts like Hugh Trevor Roper, Lord Dacre, who was on the Times board at the time, was brought in and for some reason slapped his imprimatur on them and said, yeah, these seem quite likely to be real. And it was only when the German police actually examined the paper and the glue and discovered that they all were of post-war origin that the whole thing fell apart. The story of how they fooled themselves is such an object lesson for our times. Remember, this was happening very short period of time after Clifford Irving had done exactly the same thing with Howard Hughes's diaries as, as detailed in the book Hoax, which I also recommend. So if you want to have some fun and you want to laugh at the at human folly, then in that case, this is, this is really the book for you. I'd love to because I love Robert Harris. The idea of faking history has probably yeah. been around as long as history's been around. 
And one of the things that's really lovely about this is that they decided they had to keep it secret. And in their secretiveness, that meant they couldn't check anything out. We've got this and we better show it and we really want this to be true. And yet it was all there waiting to be discovered. This is after they effectively said that they would pay tens of thousands of marks for each extra volume he produced. So they'd given him a huge incentive to produce more. He also faked a large amount of other artefacts around them. So at one wonderful stage, they're comparing his faked other Hitler stuff and Hitler's signature with the Hitler's signature on his fake diaries and saying, they're the same, they must be real. That's amazing. What was the headline? What was the thrust of it? The, the, the forger had taken a series of official almanac stuff for Nazi Germany and stuff that was being put into the public domain each day by one of the public agencies. Essentially had Hitler write that in his <laughs> handwriting and then every now and again would add a kind of extra Stalin's really got it good or something like that just for good measure. So the diaries were actually described by everybody who read them as being incredibly boring and unrevealing. I love um, a diary entry. This is Kafka for the 2nd of August, 1914. You ready for this? Yep. Germany has declared war on Russia. Went swimming in the afternoon. (laughs) I'm Emma Tucker, and I'm the editor of The Sunday Times. The book that I'd recommend to read this Christmas is The Motion of the Body Through Space by Lionel Schreiber. It's a book about our obsession with exercise. Lockdown seemed to make a lot of people obsessed with exercise. I like exercise. I like running. But this book did make me wonder, is exercise the new religion? It's also very funny. And we all need a bit of funny right now. You like reading, so get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think we should go now to the summer of 1927. Oh, I love you. I, I wanted to do Bill Bryson because I actually interviewed him on Times Radio about I don't know, a month ago, and he admitted he was retiring. The reason why Bill Bryson is so important to me is he was the, one of the first authors I read when I was a kid and reread avidly and just fell in love with a person who could write with charm and elegance and wit. He's one of the most important writers to me personally. So after I interviewed him on Times Radio. I actually did that thing where I thought, well, I'm going to reread everything he's ever written. So I reread the, the travel books, the famous one like Notes from a Small Island, which is magnificent, Lost Continent, neither here nor there. And then I stumbled across this book, which I've either read before and forgotten or never read before, but I had it. It's called One Summer, the Summer of 1927. It's a magnificent piece of, of Bryson-style history. So in 1927, it centers around the crossing 
of the Atlantic by Charles Lindbergh, the famous uh, aviator. The context for that is the fact that the Europeans after the First World War really owned aviation. America was miles behind. It was seen as a matter of national shame. And so this, there was this race to get across the Atlantic. So what Bill Bryson does is he just says, what happened in America between the months of May and September 1927? And it was an incredible year in America. The Mississippi floods happened. Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. And so there's all this going on. In, and Charles Lindbergh crosses... Uh, the Atlantic. He's also connected to Henry Ford, the great uh, car manufacturer, massive anti-Semite. Charles Lindbergh was an anti-Semite. He believed in America first, which is why it becomes relevant to us today. He wanted to make America great again. But he was really one of the first massive celebrities. When they did a parade for him in Washington, five million people came and swamped Washington. It's part of America really going from being one of the major nations in the world to being the most powerful, the most important. It's the moment in which aviation becomes owned by America rather than by the rest of the world. It's a moment where baseball has this, this incredible season and we learn about Babe Ruth, this fantastic figure of American culture. He just tells you little tiny stories within the big stories and threads it all together. It is an unequivocal pleasure on every page. That sort of attic attitude of Bill Bryson of just finding <laughs> something interesting and picking it up and showing it to you and moving on to the next thing. He's got a lovely lightness of touch, hasn't he, Bill Bryson? I mean, he can make complex things seem very straightforward. What I like about him, quite apart from the humour, which everybody w w likes about him, is there's something rather wise about him. Yeah. I think he's had that all the way through because he wrote The Lost Continent as a sub-editor on The Times. Uh, but he was 38 when he wrote that. And I don't think it did that well. And then his second book did all right. And then Notes from a Small Island happened, which was his book about Britain. It was, made him very famous in this country. But the book that changed his life was A Short History of Nearly Everything, where he takes on everything, you know, the subject of how we are, who we are. And again, like you say, it's that lightness of touch and that wisdom and the storytelling. You know, Henry Ford's a fascinating figure. He had his own newspaper and he was he sued for being an anti-Semite and was forced to apologise and then never said anything anti-Semitic in public again, having been forced uh, to apologise. The other thing he had is he bought up part of the Amazon because he wanted to create a whole country called Fordlandia. He needed to try and get rubber because he wanted to be completely self-sufficient. And rubber was owned by the British because it had been discovered and taken back to Kew Gardens and then pushed out into the British colonies. In the way that the world was conducted back then and before, just sent someone palpably unqualified to building a model country in the middle of the Amazon, sending him with things like, you know, a hundred woolly sweaters to put on, even though it's obviously a tropical environment. And it failed. And 1927 was the beginning of the failure of Henry Ford. It was the year in which he tried to replace the first model of the Ford. And so it's just filled with these stories of these figures who you kind of half know in your mind, but it gives colour to them, I think. I mean, one of the things I really like about Bill Bryson's choosing of something like this, we tend to think of history as big moment, nothing very much. Big moment, nothing very much. And one of the things that a book like this tells you is it's not like that at all. Actually, history is full of moments, and these moments are critical to what you think of the big moments as being. And if you want to understand them, it really is good to get into these bits as well, into the kind of interstices of history. It's amazing how each person touches another person and then reconnects. And that's the other thing. Charles Lindbergh was flying over 
a period where Babe Ruth's hitting a home run. He, he talks about President Harding, who was massively corrupt and died before he could be properly impeached. But a vastly corrupt president who was going to be impeached is not without relevance. And then there's uh, um, Calvin Coolidge becomes president, Silent Cal. And he tells this story, which I'm sure is not true, but I've always enjoyed it. He never liked to speak at all. And he spent most of his time in the White House on holiday, dressing up as a cowboy and things like that. He hardly ever spoke. And there's a famous story where a woman sits next to him at dinner and she says, uh, I've bet my husband that I can make you say more than three words. And the president looks back to her and says, you lose. <laughs> I'm Andrew Holgate, I'm the literary editor at the Sunday Times, and the book I would recommend for you to read this Christmas is English Pastoral by James Rebanks, which I read recently for our Christmas Books Roundup, and I've recommended as our Nature Book of the Year. It's a book about three generations of farmers in Cumbria. It's his grandfather, who was a fell farmer, his father, who was more into factory farming, and James himself, who has taken up again with fell farming. It's just a beautiful book, beautifully written, hugely informative about farming over the last 50 or 60 years and the countryside, and also to hope how we may, in the future, return to a system of farming that works both for us and for the animal world that we look after. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. My second and final book is a book I should have read years ago when it first came out, but I didn't because I was jealous. Okay. Ah. Um, this is Jeff Dyer's book, Out of Sheer Rage, which was published in 1997. And... It became something of a literary sensation. And he was sort of my age, and I took against it on the basis, why was everybody going on about it, etc. And they said it, how clever it was and so on. So I left it 23 years. Uh, and you know what? It's every bit as good as they said it was 23 years ago. And I could have reread it several times since then. Um, Jeff Dyer's a, a, an English writer. I think he was brought up in the Forest of Dean or somewhere like that from a very ordinary family, not from a literary family at all. And he then constructs a rather kind of bohemian, rather wonderful, but very disorganised life for himself, you know, in several different cities across Europe with his incredibly patient girlfriend, Laura. And out of sheer rage is his account of his attempt to write a major biography of D.H. Lawrence. Yes. And he loves D.H. Lawrence. He particularly loves D.H. Lawrence's poetry. And why Lawrence is an important writer, even if he's rather overlooked now, comes through very well in this book. But essentially, the book is about how he never gets round to writing this biography. How everything delays him, waylays him, mostly himself. Right at the beginning, he's talking about how he needs to move his books from place to place so that he can be in the right place to be able to write this major thing. And one of the volumes he's got to take with him is a big volume of D.H. Lawrence's collected poems. But he has endless debates with himself every time he moves about whether he should take the collected poems with him or not. So there's actually several pages of his internal debate about whether what comes and what goes as the writer tries to find different ways of putting off writing the thing that they can almost not bear to write and that they can't bear not to write. In every kind of dealing he has, whether it's at Ikea or whether it's walking down the street or whether it's sort of uh, driving, he's kind of like an internal Larry David. You know how 
in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David externalises all those impulses that we have internally, but we never quite say. That desire to question whether or not somebody else is transgressing the unwritten rules and so on, or worry about whether you are. And Dyer goes through all those things. And the result is so funny and such a good read. And in the end, you end up knowing an incredible amount, not just about him, but also about the D.H. Lawrence he never got round to writing the biography about. The idea of someone smarmily writing about writing, doing a meta book rather than the book they themselves want to write, <laughs> you could totally see why that would put you off as an idea. I think the charm of it's really clever. People take D.H. Lawrence about as seriously as he took himself. And that's the problem with D.H. Lawrence, because when you read D.H. Lawrence now, it doesn't always hold up in quite the same way, that sort of furious seriousness about sexuality I think can be a bit laughable and so the idea of whimsically taking D.H. Lawrence and still teaching you about him uh, he's almost the perfect writer to do that in a way and one of the things he, he, he sees about D.H. Lawrence is D.H. Lawrence is a person that never that never really quite wants to be anywhere uh, yeah. And Dyer never really quite wants to be anywhere. It's always the matter of what you could otherwise have done or what you otherwise could do. The things that a lot of us find paralysing in the end. It's almost like you're in the great supermarket of life. You look at the shelves and you think, oh, God, what do I choose? And you walk out of the supermarket with nothing. It's the Netflix experience where you can spend an entire evening flicking through, sorrowfully decide you can't watch anything because the evening's now over and going to bed. Hello, my name is John Witherow, and I'm the editor of The Times. The book I'd like to recommend this Christmas is called JFK. It's the first volume of a two-volume biography of the former president of the United States, and it's written by an American academic called Frederick Logoval. It is a monster of a book, nearly 800 pages long, and when I first picked it up, I thought, this could be hard work. It is anything but... It's beautifully written, beautifully paced, and tells the story of his childhood in Boston, his rise in politics, how he very nearly died in the Second World War, the tragedies that afflicted his family, and how he eventually rose to become President of the United States. It's a superb piece of work and one of the best biographies I've ever read. I couldn't recommend it more highly. You have a third book. This one I have read and I think is absolutely magnificent. So you tell us about, about it, Stig. So I think this is great. It was recommended to me in a fictional book I was reading. So one of my favourite genre novelists is a guy called Robert B. Parker, who wrote in a series about an American private detective called Spencer, with an S, named for the author of The Fairy Queen. So he's this kind of liberal, idol, literate, hard-talking, hard-drinking, but charming always successful private detective. He's a great character. He's one of the great private detectives in American fiction. But he, he loves books. So at one point, he was sitting uh, in his office waiting for a new case. And he says, I was reading Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror and enjoying her story of, of the Black Death and what it meant to, to Europe. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've not heard of that. I love history books, but I've not heard about that. So I bought the book based on the recommendation of a fictional private detective. She's a fascinating woman. It's about basically France mainly, but all Europe and how it responded to the Black Death, what it meant for society. And Barbara Tuckman, she wasn't brilliantly regarded by a very snobbish academic community, which is one of the reasons I like her so much. She was writing history based on stories of lives 
tying the threads of history together. It's beautifully written, it's full of interest, and it's full of the stories of that extraordinary 14th century Europe, where Europe was really completely reshaped by the effects of a plague, where societal structures were changed, views of mortality were changed, how we became who we are now was significantly changed. And she writes this piece of very confident, all-encompassing history. History books can either be too dense or too light, and she avoids both of those. She won two Pulitzers in her career, but not for this one. But this was her bestseller, I think. The 14th century is just an extraordinary century. As you say, you've got the Black Death. You've got, between uh, England and France, you've got the Hundred Years' War is going for half of that period of time. And then in England, towards the end of that century, you get the Peasants' Revolt, which is actually more as directly a consequence of what happens after the Black Death. It is also a century of extraordinary change. It's a, a century of incredibly religious change. You have the desire to begin to break free of the clerical language of Latin and into the dialects and, and languages of the countries. So English comes into its own for the first time, really, in, in the 14th century as a written and spoken language, including in Parliament. And she she tells it also through the story of certain key French people. How do you say his name? Enguerrand de Courcy, is it? Yeah, de Courcy is it's the French family that she focuses on, isn't it? You have a lot of it told through the experiences of this family. You're suddenly completely surrounded by this century, which is really nothing like this century, but maybe something like this century. And you begin to understand all kinds of things. She just takes you there and you inhabit it, don't you? You totally do. And with, we think about this now with coronavirus. It didn't make much of an impact on the literature of the day. Chaucer doesn't write about the Black Death. Shakespeare didn't write about the plague. The, the modernists didn't write about the Spanish flu pandemic. So although this thing is, is all pervasive, completely remodels Europe, completely remodels countries and social classes, for whatever reason, it's not seen in the literary record, it's there in the historical record. And that's what she delves into, you become immersed in it. She also comes up with a great law, Tuckman's Law. Disaster is rarely as pervasive as it seems from recorded accounts, which may be the, the point that I'm making there. There's a great line in it where she goes, good news is no news and we're surrounded by bad news. And she says, after absorbing the news of today, one expects to face a world consisting entirely of strikes, crimes, power failures, broken water mains, stalled trains, school <laughs> shutdowns, muggers, drug addicts, neo-Nazis and rapists. One can come home in the evening on a lucky day without having encountered more than one or two of those phenomena. <laughs> and, and she says, this led me to formulate Tuckman's law, which is as follows. The fact of being reported multiplies the apparent extent of any deplorable development by five to tenfold, which is a really salutary lesson for, for journalists as well as historians, which is just because you're writing about it doesn't mean it's the only thing that's happening. That, that really is great. And actually, it reminds us that there's plenty of room, even in a society that we think is deficient, for you to read books on the 628, which is where we came in. Your point, which is really interesting, and I think is something we should think about a lot in the year to come, is why it is we have been so reluctant to let pandemics and events like this that kill thousands and thousands of people, why we're so reluctant to allow them to interrupt our train of thought. Is it a denial? Is it, a oh, world? that's nature, what do you expect? I, I don't know what it is, but it's a really interesting phenomenon. I, I, yeah, maybe it's an evolutionary response. Maybe the only way of surviving those things is not to look directly at them. What are you actually going to be doing at Christmas? I've got three children, 11, 9 and 2. 
So whatever state we get to in terms of coronavirus, my Christmas is probably going to be the same as last year. We're going to be a relatively small family sitting in a house, getting each other presents. And maybe the lesson also from this is that if you can go to a bookshop, go to a bookshop and buy people books for Christmas, because that's never a bad thing. And we've got a very good thought about what you could start with. Yeah, exactly. Bill Bryson. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Bryson it is. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times Radio Breakfast Show presenter and Sunday Times columnist, Stig Abel. You can read more of Stig's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Oliver Adamson, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to... Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. Have a great Christmas. Hope to see you next year. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 